0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Welcome to Why I'll Never Make It, a lighthearted podcast that takes a revealing look at a career in the entertainment industry, featuring stories and conversations with those on stage and backstage, on screen and behind the scenes. To keep up with all the guests and episodes, go to the website, winmepodcast.com. There you will find ways to follow and connect via Twitter and Instagram, as well as ways to support and donate to this podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and this is Why I'll Never Make It. Well hello and welcome to another episode of Why I'll Never Make It. Thanks for joining me here today. Well, the award season is now in high gear with all the major theater nominations are out. The Drama Desk, the Outer Critics Circle, the Drama League, and of course the mother of them all, the Tonys. So from social media and online advertising to billboards, news articles, and yes, even podcasts. Everyone seems to be uh, promoting and talking about all the hottest shows and also some noticeable omissions from this year's nominee lists. So today I'm going to be jumping into the deep end as well, talking about some of the current Broadway Darlings, and joining me will be Dr. Broadway herself to also discuss the history that went into making Broadway what it is today, as well as some of the backstory to the Tony Awards. Now, Dr. Broadway, also known as Kristen Stoltz-Presley, is a musical theater historian, and as you would guess, one of Broadway's biggest fans. And as a passionate and energetic presenter, Presley has taught theater at every level, from preschool all the way up to university. And yes, she is an actual doctor with a PhD in theater and film studies. Now, for her research on the life and work of Tony Award-winning lyricist and librettist Dorothy Fields, she was awarded the Bruce Curl Emerging Musical Theater Scholar Award. That's kind of a long-winded title, but it all is there to say that she knows a whole lot about Dorothy Fields. And so we'll also be getting into that, discussing her important and pivotal work that she produced during Broadway's golden age. You know, Stephen Sondheim once wrote that work is what you do for others, and art is what you do for yourself. And, and as for, uh, for Dr. Broadway, that's exactly what she loves about being a musical theater historian. And it also informs her ongoing mission, which is to educate theatergoers in order to enhance theater going. Kristen, thank you so much for being with me on the podcast today.
1: I cannot thank you enough for having me. It is a great honor to be a part of this. I've enjoyed listening to your podcast, and so now to be a part of it is a thrill for me. Thank you.
0: Well, I've, I'm, I'm glad you've been listening and enjoying, and you are joining me on Zoom today because you're originally from what, what part of the Southeast?
1: Well, I'm in the Southeast. I'm originally from South Carolina, but I live now in North Carolina, right outside of Asheville. So everything that I do, uh, well, I say everything. I've spoken at BroadwayCon a couple of times and done some things um, in London as well, but mostly, what. I do is work with theaters in the Southeast. So I'm, I'm a a southerner in case you can't tell.
0: (laughs) I'm originally from Birmingham, Alabama, so I totally
1: understand. How did that not come up? (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. How long have you been in New York? Uh,
0: I've been here 10 years now.
1: That's awesome. Birmingham, so Mountain Brook, all those great little villages. I love Birmingham. It's a great town.
0: And, and you went to school in Georgia, which is right next door to us.
1: Not too far at all. Not too far at all. Yes, I got my PhD in Athens at the University of Georgia.
0: Nice. Yes, nice. sir. Well, speaking of that doctorate degree, I would love to get your professional doctoral opinion then. When it comes to uh, the health of Broadway as you see it right now, and, and kind of, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, kind of what does it look like right now?
1: You know, I think one great indicator of Broadway's health is its viewership. And if you look right now at... Uh, just this past week, uh, about 328,000 tickets were sold to Broadway shows for over $40 million. And the average ticket price is $122 each. I think that's a really, really, uh, a really positive sign for the health of Broadway. I can also tell you, like I've told you before we started recording, I do most of my work regionally. So I'm working with a lot of, of touring houses. So I see a lot of the shows that are going through um, uh, around the country. And I will tell you the caliber of talent that I'm seeing is so much higher I was a um, theater reviewer in Atlanta for a couple of years right out of college before I went back to grad school and I remember even at that time we'd see shows at the Fox and often it seemed like the caliber of talent that you got uh, in the tours was maybe not quite on par with Broadway this was 20 years ago though right. I will say however there is zero discrepancy now. I mean, the the caliber of performer that is touring the country now is just top notch. So there's really no, um, uh, you don't miss out on anything. If you see a show, say in Greenville, South Carolina, or Charlotte, North Carolina, or Birmingham, Alabama, or Nashville, Tennessee, you don't miss out on anything, seeing it in one of those cities rather than see it in New York city. So I think that the health uh, of Broadway is, is, really, really good. And I think one thing that's uh, really helped that is like, it's helped everything social media. I mean, people can, uh, can communicate with each other. Fans can communicate with each other now in ways that we couldn't do. I remember when I was in college, this was the late nineties and there was a magazine called I think it was in theater and it was basically like a people magazine for theater people. And I tell you what, I got that magazine and I wanted to cut it up and put like pictures of, you know, Alice Ripley on my locker. And, you know, I mean, I was such a a for those things. But that was really all that we had back before the internet and before Twitter and before all of these social media communities started to form. And now you go to an event like BroadwayCon and I just think I'm 40, almost 42 years old now, but I look at these kids who are there and I think, man, what I would have given to have this sort of community when I was their age. Um, So I think that that has been such a positive thing for the health of so many things but broadway as it pertains to me i mean look at even like be more chill um, and how that really was uh, obviously there was such a buzz about that on social media that it's now playing on broadway so you can see there the power of uh of communities how the world became much smaller when we were all connected by the internet
0: yeah, because with social media, you're able to to really hone in on on a niche market. Like if you want to go for millennials, if you want to go for people just out of college, if you want to, you know, specify your message, you can even Absolutely. target ads to to specific people. So social media has given us a chance to to really find those niche markets and maybe reach out to people who haven't been coming to the theater or or people who who may not be represented as much in in the theater audience.
1: Absolutely. And you look at shows like Dear Evan Hansen and the way that it's able to use social media. I mean, uh, a lot of their marketing materials contain the pictures of people who posted videos or pictures on Instagram and hashtagged the Dear Evan Hansen hashtag. And now they're part of the marketing for the show. I mean, it's absolutely incredible what's happening. Um, furthermore, even the fact that I'm able to talk to you is, is, out of social media. Uh, and, and if, if it weren't for the internet, um, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. So I think it's just been such a positive way to really build up, um, not only the Broadway community, but also to disseminate the Broadway product because we are able to access things. I mean, I just think, man, if I had had access to YouTube channels and all of those things that are just out there now, I mean, when I give a, a lecture, every single time I'm using some kind of material, a video material, generally from YouTube by the creator of the show. Um, and that to have that accessible is, is absolutely unbelievable and, and makes the world a much smaller place in a, in a really positive way.
0: And that goes for being an actor as well, because I know that whenever I am researching for a particular song, particular role or show, I can go on YouTube and I can find that yeah. song. I can find previous performances of it, either from the Tony Awards or maybe some, some like staged cast recording that they did. And it really, especially for lesser known shows, it really kind of helps me get a sense of of, you know how how to approach that audition so even even from the actor standpoint you know the social media and YouTube that kind of thing has really helped
1: right and look at how Pasik and Paul got their start You know, I mean, they were at the University of Michigan, and they didn't get cast in in significant roles in shows. uh, They're at University of Michigan, so they decided, hey, we'll just write our own stuff, and they started posting it on Facebook, and it spread like wildfire. They had people all across the world saying, hey, and this was at the point when Facebook was just for college students, um, so they had people from all over the world messaging them saying, Hey, can we perform your song for this cabaret? And and look at them now. <laughs> it worked out for them.
0: <laughs> yes, it worked out really well for them. Yeah, yeah, very true. So, when it comes to uh, another part of that question of the health of Broadway, is the actual material being performed yeah. and the types of shows that we're seeing? What have you seen over the last few years for for the good and for the bad of Broadway that that that's taking it in in a particular direction, one way or the other?
1: Well, that feels like such a loaded question. I feel like I may get myself in trouble here.
0: <laughs> no, and I tried to ask in such a way that there's really no wrong answer because I mean, art yeah. art in and of itself is subjective. And so right. I'm not really trying to, you know, you know, this show's a good show, that shows a bad show. Right. I I'm I more just am curious about your impressions of the, the trajectory of it in general. And well, like, is like is is the art form surviving? Is it or, or does it need some tweaking, some pushing and pulling?
1: Well, I think it's surviving. I think in a lot of ways it's thriving. Um, I think that one of the things, you know, looking at ticket sales, one of the reasons ticket sales are so healthy is because the product that Broadway is producing are things that people are familiar with. And that being, you know, um, just looking at new shows that opened this year, Beetlejuice, King Kong, Pretty Woman, Tootsie, these are known entities, right? Uh, People who come from out of town to see a show, they, know those titles, and if they're going to drop $150 or even the average ticket price, $122, which seems low, but that accounts for those half price tickets at TKTS or whatever, Um, if they're going to drop a huge amount of money, that's a big part of their vacation budget. They want a known entity, right? They feel more comfortable risking $150 per person on something that they know. So say Pretty Woman or Mamma Mia, for instance, one of the longest running musicals of all time, which though it wasn't a known story, it was definitely a known catalog of music or Jersey Boys, same thing. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways that Broadway is selling so robustly at this point is they're giving the audience known entities, whether that is through, uh, taking films and adapting them to musicals. When I was a kid, it was the other way around. And historically, it was always the other way around. If you had a great musical, it was then made into a movie and now it's happening in reverse. Um, or taking a known catalog of music this, this year alone, ain't too proud. Um, the temptations musical opened, the share show head over heels with music by the go-go's, we're taking a known entity and what we're hoping, at least I'm assuming this is what producers are thinking. We're hoping that tourists who have a limited travel budget will pick my show with the known entity over the unknown show, right? That's going to cost me a lot of money and I may or may not like it. So what, you know, I can get curmudgeony and say, well, it's not written just for Broadway. So it's not as good as something that's written just for Broadway. But at the same time, It's getting people into the seats. So isn't that good for Broadway? If people are coming to see the shows? um,
0: Well, I will take the curmudgeon stance because... (laughs) I'm
1: afraid to. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings.
0: (laughs) No, no. Well, Well, see, for me, both as an actor and as a theater goer, I, I actually miss the days, even though I wasn't really alive in the golden age, but I miss those days where the musical started first, that it, it was written for the stage, it was, pr- it was produced and, you know, with the live theater element as its core, and then it kind of blossomed into whatever production for TV or, or for film. And so for me, I, I love it because it's so rare now when there is a new original piece of work that comes to Broadway. And thankfully the Tony awards are starting to, uh, or, or at least for the most part, they try to promote those as well. You know, Hamilton, right. Dear Evan Hansen, Gentleman's right. Guide, the last several best musical Tony awards went to actual original pieces that weren't based on, on some, some other kind of, you know, movie or soundtrack or, you know, pop hit catalog.
1: Right. Absolutely. And I don't want to I don't want to spoil the rest of our conversation, but it's for that reason alone that that my pick <laughs> to be the big musical winner this year would be Hadestown. For that reason, I think that um, it's something new and exciting, even though it's been in creation for a number of years. But I think that it kind of follows the track of Hamilton in a lot of ways mm-hmm. that it's been in development for I mean, What did she start writing this like 2010 or so it's been a long time in development, uh, started off Broadway obviously. And then now has just opened. Um, so I do feel like Broadway tends to favor that kind of thing as opposed to, uh, the, the movie turned musical or the jukebox musical, even though Jersey boys won. Um, but I will say even those movie musicals, those adaptations that have won the best Tony, which would be like kinky boots and once and Billy Elliot, those are independent films that probably a lot of people weren't familiar with prior to them becoming they were basically unknown entities. They weren't like Tootsie or Pretty Woman, where we know those names, we know those stories. Um, they were they were new to probably new to American audience because I believe each one of them were not only independent films, but independent British films.
0: Oh, that's true. That's true. That that is something yeah. that they that they yeah. all share. And as far as of of those movies, I never saw um, kinky boots before before it it was a, a right. musical.
1: I didn't either. I didn't either. So I, in fact, I didn't know until I had to give a lecture about it when it came through the Peace Center in Greenville, South Carolina, which is a theater I've worked with for eight years. Um, when it came through there, I was doing the research for my my we call them peace talks. and uh, I was like, wait a minute. this is based on a movie. I've never heard of it. but yeah, they're all all the movie adaptations that have won Tony's are kind of niche, independent films, British films.
0: And then, and the same with last year, The Band's Visit. I mean, that, that, that's even right. a more obscure film. Like that, that was a exactly. foreign film that I don't think any American, most American audiences would never have heard of.
1: Exactly, exactly. So Broadway tends to favor um, the new work, or if it is going to be the adaptation, like I said, it feels like a new work to American audiences. So that's why, and again, spoiler alert, Town is my pick this year <laughs> to be the runaway winner.
0: Which is interesting because I was looking at, at some of the nominations that have come out. And the one that is strangely missing is from the, let's see, this is the, um, the Drama Desk Awards, no, uh, the Drama Desk nominations. And yes. Town is not up for Outstanding Musical, which I thought was really strange.
1: And you, it's funny that you should say that because I just read about why that is because it was so recently off Broadway and Drama Desk considers on and off Broadway shows for their awards. They would only consider for this year's award um, the parts of uh, the Sh- Hades Town that were considered new work. So things that may have changed, maybe new actors or if they changed designers or something, they would have been considered for a Drama Desk this year. But since they were considered so recently for their Off-Broadway run, it was not considered, it wasn't considered eligible this year for the the, uh, Drama Desk.
0: Very interesting. Yeah, th- yeah, because it's interesting w- with a piece that's been around, uh, like you said, for so many years. It's had many yeah. incarnations off Broadway. There was the there was the, uh, the uh, a recording of it by the
1: yes uh, by
0: the songwriter. So yeah, it's kind of had a life of its own outside of Broadway, even before it came to the stage.
1: Again, very much like Hamilton. I just see a lot of parallel tracks between those two. Um, and maybe I'm wrong because God knows I've been wrong a lot, <laughs> but it just feels very, very similar in the way that it has erupted. Uh, and every I feel like everywhere I turn, I'm seeing Hadestown. Now, I'm seeing a lot of Tootsie, too. Tootsie's getting a lot of really positive buzz. In fact, I think, what did it get? Twelve? Uh, was it twelve drama Desk nominations? It yeah. got a lot of one of one of the nominations that came out. It got a, a lot of them. So I expect that it will do really great things. But again, what what I think gives Hades Town the edge is that it's new, you know, and Broadway tends to favor that.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and having just seen it uh, a couple of weeks ago, yeah, it's it's definitely the way that it's staged, the way that it's presented. It it is very fresh, and in fact, I didn't even know until after I saw it that it was a previous recording and that you know yes. the, the songwriter's been working on it for X number of years.
1: Yeah, like a, it was a folk opera. Um, I think maybe that recording was in 2010 on East Mitchell uh, produced that and then and then when she saw uh, Rachel Chapkin, Okay. Uh, who is the director of the show. She saw her work in Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. Right. And as soon as she saw that, she said, this is, you know, I think this woman would share my vision for what I think Hadestown should look like on stage. And once they paired up, that's when it started moving towards production.
0: You had mentioned that you you talk a lot about shows, either that come through uh, venues, yes. you know, where that are near you. And so... What do you tend to pull out whenever you're talking about a particular show? What are the the characteristics or the nuggets that you're looking for that you want to bring to theater audiences?
1: Well, just something really that uh, what happens, my process is I will research a show and I will dig and dig and dig and dig. And again, this is the kind of research I couldn't have done prior to the Internet. So that's another another thing that I'm so thankful for. If it was If I was still in college, I'd be in a library, <laughs> which thank God I'm not um but yeah so i just dig and dig and i watch all kinds of interviews and and the theater talk broadcast which i love um that was done for so many years. And and I dig out what's interesting to me. So for instance, the most recent show that I did a piece talk for was Come From Away. So I talked then um, about, you know, this was an actual event and here's what happened and, and here's how the show was written. So the writers were actually kind of starving artists and they were both working day jobs, their husband and wife, they were both working day jobs, um, though uh, they were performers. He was a singer songwriter and she is an actor. And yet they were, they both had, they had a mortgage, they had a child. So they were definitely trying to burn the candle at both ends. And they said, you know, let's take a summer off from all of this craziness and do something so that we can be together. And so they did something so that they could be together. And then that eventually led to the opportunity for them to, um, attend the 10th anniversary of all of these folks who had been grounded in Gander, Newfoundland, um, on September 11th. Yeah. And they were, there was a group of them there. They they did thousands of hours of interviews with with the people who were there. Town of Gander is nine thousand people, um, but on 9-11, it was a town of sixteen thousand people. So it almost doubled the population. Um, so and, and and so many of those folks have stayed in touch again via social media. They're connected on Facebook. There's groups of them that are um, congregated on Facebook. So on the tenth anniversary of that, they came back together. The creators, Irene Sankoff and David Ston- or David Hine of that show, interviewed many of them. This was not at all thought that it would go to Broadway. In fact, David Hine comically said one in five Broadway shows makes a profit and there's been five shows to go to Broadway from Canada and one of them has already made a profit so it ain't gonna be us he's talking <laughs> about the drowsy chaperone the drowsy chaperone had turned a profit in 2006 so he's like "Why we're not doing this for Broadway but they saw the response that audiences had to it um, and, and, and so the first showing was at a college uh, in 2012. And then in 2013, it was there again. And, and then went through La Jolla Playhouse and talking about kind of the right. trajectory of how it got to Broadway and how it was created. But I really focused in that talk a lot about Sankoff and Hine and their backstory and how uh, their, 2000, uh, or their September 11th story even and how that informed their writing of the musical about the aftermath of 9-11. Uh, so it really just is anything... That I think is interesting. I assume my audience will think is interesting, um, and it, it, it absolutely informs. I say educating theater goers to enhance theater going because I really think that the more that you know about a musical or a show, any show. My my niche is musical theater, but any show, the more deeply you're going to enjoy that show when you see it. So, for instance, when you know the backstory of how. Uh, Sankoff and Hine came to write it. When you know that it was based on an actual event, when you know that they originally thought it's not going to be a musical, it'll be a a documentary play kind of like the Laramie Project, well then you understand why they're they're talking directly to the audience. When you know that Irene Sankoff uh, was an actor herself and wanted to create kind of an actor's playground, you understand why she has people playing so many different roles in the musical and playing often against type because she wanted, she's an actor and she wanted to flex her muscles. So she wanted to give the performers in her show an opportunity to flex theirs. So I think that when you know that, it's you just enjoy it so much more. Uh, So that's what I do with every show that comes through um, for whatever tack I take in that in that lecture there are 6000 other roads other little rabbit trails i could follow there's so much information out there and it's all so interesting yeah yeah so i just choose what's the most interesting
0: yeah and that's that's really i think the the only way you can really approach it because if you someone who knows the musical theater and is, and is well-educated in the art and craft of it, if you find it interesting, then certainly someone who's coming at it with fresh eyes, someone who may not know that much, is certainly going to, to find it interesting and something they didn't know and a different way of looking right. at a show or, or a piece, as you said. Yeah, and coming at it from an actor's standpoint, come from a way with such an interesting piece because there were no stars in it, it was a, a, a one act basically, 90 minutes straight through. And I think almost all of the actors never leave the stage. They just kind of rearrange some chairs. The stage kind of moves lighting. That's they right. go to this side, to that side. And, and like you said, they put on a hat or a vest and then they're a new character. And so it was a very yes. different kind of musical. And, and a lot of people thought it was going to win best music or at least could have.
1: Yeah, I definitely think it, I mean, it's, it's all a, it's all a thing of timing. You know, I, I heard lin Miranda say one of the reasons why they did, they waited to open until the following season is because they wanted Fun Home to have its moment. So there's definitely, um, there's an element of timing to it. And I, I thought also Waitress, you know, was up against Hamilton, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And I remember thinking at the time, oh, that's just, Bad timing, you know, because it's such a great fun show based on an independent film. Um, but back to your point about come from away, I hate to go back to it, but I just saw it. So it's fresh on my memory. But you mentioned the fact that it's just a 90-minute one act. And the reason for that is originally in its development, it was a regular two-act show with a break for intermission. But at some point in its development, and I'm not sure exactly at what point, but at some point the director said, you know what? It stops the action, it does. Doesn't work. Those people in Gander did not get a break for that whole week that the Come From Awayers were there. So why should we give the audience a break? And they just made it one straight, one straight kind of marathon sort of show. And it really works. It really works. But that's another one of those things that when you under you might think, oh well, they probably just had ninety minutes of material. But no, that's not true. In fact, it was. I'm
0: sure they had a lot of music. Yeah.
1: Thousands of hours, thousands of hours um, but you know they um, that was an intentional choice so that you could your experience as a theater goer kind of mirrored the experience of the Newfoundlanders in Gander.
0: and also what was so interesting is that it took a Canadian to finally write about an, a very American experience of nine eleven and i've I've seen little Presentations, little, you know, a few like off-off-Broadway things, or you know, this or that theatrically done. But really, it hasn't been touched, really, right. at least here in America. And I think that a Canadian viewpoint, and also talking about it in a very removed setting like yeah. Newfoundland, and yeah. approaching 9/11 from that, because it, it's one of those things where you you really as as you said you find out about these people in gander and that experience and then there's that moment where we finally start to talk about what what someone experienced and what they were feeling about you know a relative or someone in you know when they were trying to call someone or you know and you you finally kind of have those few minutes where okay now we're going to address what actually happened
1: yeah
0: uh, those twin towers
1: that's a great point that I had not thought of the, um, they had a distance that um, an American wouldn't have had. And, And, and so I think the distance that they had as Canadians, I think you're absolutely right, was so effective, but also the distance of time, you know, I did, when I was in graduate school, I did a research project on plays that dealt with war. And what I found in looking at it was that we don't tend to write about a war until at least 20 years after it's over. Now, there is an exception to that. Miss Saigon is a massive exception to that because it was writing about the Vietnam War in the mid 80s. Um, So that's a major exception to that. But beyond that, it's it, we need some time, I think, to process things ourselves before we're ready to see things on stage. Now what we might do, and this did happen in the wake of nine 11, um, was we saw a resurgence across the country at regional theaters of theaters doing plays about war, but they were about the cold war or they were about the world war I. They were not plays about war on terror. It was too fresh. And plus we didn't right. know how things were going to turn out yet. So it was still, um, it, 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 that story wasn't yet written. Um, so I think you're right. We need distance. And, and the fact that they had a distance as Canadians is a really good point.
0: Something that you bring up about theater, um, you know, that old saying, art imitates life. Yes. And one of the uh, things that we were kind of talking about before we started were, uh, were plays that are, that are nominated and kind of what that's saying about where our thoughts are as far as like yeah. politically, and environmentally, and socially, and with the nominations of, of things like ink, and network, and To Kill a Mockingbird, what the Constitution means to me. These are all plays that deal with um, ideas and things that we're really thinking about, and in some, some way, struggling with as a country.
1: Right, so yeah, there's uh, the the notion of the media figures very heavily into this and then another play it wasn't nominated for the Outer Critic Circle Award, um, but it's it's a really popular play in this moment is um, Hillary and Clinton, mm-hmm. which is another one that will certainly deal with um, politics and that national discussion is definitely showing up on stages across America, but even, you know, specifically on Broadway. And it's, it's not just politics, but also we're looking at the media, as you mentioned, Inc., um, looking at Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> um, but again, it's not looking at Rupert Murdoch today, it's looking at Rupert Murdoch in 1969. So again, there's this kind of separation. And even the uh, even network, I mean, that is based on a movie, but the movies from 1976. So there's some separation in time so that we're able to make some inferences about ourselves and our culture today by looking at it through the lens of 30 plus 40 plus years ago, Mm. because that feels a little bit safer than putting a mirror up to our faces right now.
0: It's so interesting that you say that because To Kill a Mockingbird is the same thing because that takes place in Mm -hmm. the, is that the the 50s when that,
1: 60s, 60s. 19, 19, uh, Harper Lee. That was 1960. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then what's interesting about what the Constitution means to me, that is a very present play. However, she talks about a speech from when she was 15 years old. And that's, that's the basic of it. So even the playwright, she looks back in time to talk about something that's happening right now.
1: Well, and, you know, think about it. How many times you see, I don't know, it might be a tweet or you might hear a joke after something has happened and somebody says, oh, too soon, too soon. Right. And, you know, that's really, there's a lot of truth to that because we need time. We don't necessarily like it when things hit too close to home. It's uncomfortable for us. And it may be instructive for us, but it's nonetheless uncomfortable for us. So when you remove things and make it, I know I saw a couple of years ago, The, the Best Man, which was an awesome show with James Earl Jones in it. Um, see, that would have been 2012. And uh, it, was, it was a revival of a play, but it was talking about the 19, I wanna say 1960 election. Um, so the Democratic National Com- Convention in 1960. And yet it was, there were so many moments when I turned to my husband and said, Oh, wow, <laughs> you know, that still applies. <laughs> and it, it, you, you know, your, your hair kind of stands up on its edge when you look at the fact that uh, there's nothing new under the sun. But even when you listen to Hamilton, and you think about the things that they were grappling with, back at the creation of this country are still the things that we're grappling with you know all these hundreds of years after the creation of our country uh so it's 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 really interesting how those things show up in in the art that we produce
0: and so looking forward to what Broadway could be, whether it's the the issues that will tackle or what shows will look like, what do you see kind of coming down the pike or even what do you hope for when it comes to the future of what Broadway can be?
1: Well, there's an economic component to that, uh, and that is... The more that shows cost to produce, the less likely they are to get produced because the longer they're going to have to run to recoup that investment. And there's a reason why Irving Berlin said there's no business like show business because it is, in fact, a business. And so I think that there is... I'm not sure how much farther that we can go. I mean, I I know that there are artists out there who have the capability to go as far as we want to go, but can the economy of Broadway sustain that? I don't know. But I also think to go back to shows like come from away, which is not, there's not really any bells and whistles to that show. Like you pointed out. I mean, it is, it is people in chairs and those chairs become whatever we want those chairs to be. Even I think that, um, recent revival of the color of the color purple was very,
0: yeah the color purple. I, I thought of the yeah, same thing. chairs It
1: was very, it was chairs. It was very basic and it was beautiful. I mean, that show stayed with me for, you know, I don't know if this is your experience, but oftentimes because I see so much theater, I wake up the next day and go on with my life. There have been a handful of shows that, that sit with me and that I marinate on for weeks to come And The Color Purple was one of those shows where I just, it just stayed in my bones. But it was very, very simple. So I don't think that audiences demand, I think audiences are sophisticated enough to understand that there is a distinction between a film experience and a live theater experience. And I remember thinking when Spider Man, I mean, I love Julie Taymor. I love her. I think she's a genius. Uh, Obviously, she's a genius. It's not just I think that. The world knows she's a genius. But (laughs) I would say that um, as we were doing things with Spider-Man that I I remember thinking, maybe these things shouldn't be done on a stage. Um, That's that's exactly what
0: what i was thinking when i when yeah. i because i i i got rush tickets so i paid 25 bucks and this was two years into its preview uh right. You know, still right <laughs> yes. and so yes. and so I, I i was like up in the balcony and i'm just like watching it and you know fortunately there were no technical or nobody fell on action. his head
1: <laughs> yeah
0: yeah so fortunately that wasn't the case but just the piece itself it was it it seemed like so much effort went into the the stunts which which were rather amazing yeah. and also went into the projections which unfortunately i don't think added to it at all and so there there were just there were just elements where so much time and money went into it that it seemed to fall short of of the basics of well is the music good is are, right. are the singers uh, uh, cast correctly is the story being told and the basics of it kind of lost its way in all the spectacle.
1: Right. And that I think it can be a
0: big problem. I I haven't seen King Kong, but I've heard that that's kind of the same thing that so much energy went into the puppetry and it's amazing. And what they do with this creature on stage, but then the characters are kind of one note and you know, this and that. So I've heard the critiques of it and it seems like that maybe it fell into the same trap.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. And like I said, I think that theater goers are obviously sophisticated enough to know this is a live show and I expect something different because the live experience is so much richer than a film experience. And so, you know, for my money, I'd rather see a, you know, bare bones show like the color purple or come from away um, and have that live moment that, that, you know, a great theater philosopher called it the ghost because you can't define it and you can't see it. But that interaction between audience and um, performer, then to go to see something where I'm like, well, that's really cool. I'm so impressed that they can do that, but you know, do they need to do that? So I do think that there's an economy to it. I think that at some point those types of things are going to be so expensive that they're going to be cost prohibitive. Now, again, I may be wrong because we haven't gotten there yet, but um, I I, I don't, I hope that, I mean, there's always going to be people and always have been, I mean, historically, There's always been, I mean, if you look at vaudeville, they were just trying to amaze people with what they could do, whether it be pick up people and chairs or whatever. They just wanted to amaze people. So there's always been that need to wow an audience. But as audiences expect more and more and more, it gets harder and harder and harder to wow them. So I just don't know how much longer the economy of Broadway, meaning ticket prices, meaning the amounts of money that producers are willing to put up for shows. I just don't know how much higher that can get.
0: Well, I think Spider-Man was kind of a tale yeah. and going too far. Mm-hmm. And so I think that I mean except for for King Kong, I I I can't remember what what it cost, but I know its costs were pretty high just yeah. with its technical aspects. But for the most part, I don't think any show has tried to be another be another uh, Spider-Man.
1: No, I that. think because I think it was it a very instructive. In. Yeah, I think that was a very instructive moment for all of us when we begin to see You know, maybe it's, I mean, even look at Fosse. Fosse was dancers on a stage and it won the Tony Award for Best New Musical. And it was awesome. I loved it. Um, we, we, We need great stories and great songs and great performers. We don't need great projections. I mean, they're cool to see, but we don't need them to have a brilliant piece of theater. And
0: that actually gets me to my big question then. What in your experience of researching shows, talking about shows, seeing shows that come through on tour, seeing shows here in New York, what is it about a show that makes it or doesn't make it? Like, like what what do you see as that defining factor? Because you know, there's the technical. There's you can spend a lot of money or you can not. There's the the you can have a cast full of stars or a cast full of unknowns. Yeah. Is there elements that that kind of come together? And be like, if you can get all these pieces working together, this is how you, a Broadway show makes it.
1: You know what I come to, although there's exceptions to every rule. And even as, as my gut says, this is the answer that I want to give. <laughs> like, can I phone a friend just to be sure? <laughs> but as my gut says, the place, the thing, the story, if it has a great story, if it has characters that we love and want, that we want to know. And I give you a reason that I, that, Not the only reason that I say this, but one of the reasons that I say that. There was a show that I saw, and it was a Kander and Ebb show, brand new, in 1998, called Steel Pier. Mm -hmm. It had the most spectacularly beautiful music. It starred Karen Ziemba, who is... I mean, a light, I mean, effervescent on stage. She was so beautiful, is so beautiful. I'm such a fan of hers. She was the uh, leading lady. It had, um, uh, Gregory Harrison was one of the leading men. Kristen Chenoweth, I think it was her second Broadway show. She was in it in in a small part. And then the, the guy who played, his name on the sh- in the show was Flyboy Bill Kelly, and I, he's passed away since, and I cannot think of his name. But nonetheless, it had a great cast, brilliant music, the scenes, I mean, the settings, gorgeous. It was gorgeous. Everything about it technically was beautiful. The choreography was exquisite. But the story... Like, I remember I was a 21-year-old college senior, I guess, when I saw it. And I remember my dad having to explain to me nuances of the story. I just didn't understand it. And my mom, we were both like, what? wait, what? He was an angel. What? You know, we just, the story didn't work. And so in spite of the fact that everything about this show and I still listen to the music and it still gives me chill bumps. And I still remember Karen Ziemba standing on that stage with her first entrance and just like an aura of glory around her. I will never forget that entrance. And yeah, the story didn't work. It didn't work. And so the hmm. show opened and closed in very short order. I mean, a couple of months, maybe I may, I may be wrong on this, but two or three months, uh, maybe. So that's what I keep thinking is, isn't it Shakespeare? Who said the place, the thing, and that's what I keep coming back to the story. How good is the story? Now, having said that, you know, I could give just as many examples of stories or beautiful stories that are told so well but don't work for reasons, who knows why. But, but if I have to give an answer, I think it's the story. What do you think?
0: Well, I I would tend to agree with you in the fact that it has to reach an audience and it has to strike a chord. And just thinking back to some of the musicals that have won previously, I mean, Dear Evan Hansen, I think is, is the best example of that. It just Struck a chord yeah. with with people of that age group, but I think also of parents dealing with that age group, and right. and so I think that there was something for everyone. Of, you know, I relate to that. I've been through that. You know, my kids going through that, or my friends are going through that. Right. Depending on who you were, I think when a show strikes a chord, but an emotional element to a show is so kind of elusive and ethereal it's like how it's do you the find ghost. That?
1: it's the ghost you yeah. can't define it yeah exactly, yeah. Be- exactly. B- because
0: like you said that like music is such a part of that and that Kendra and ebb show beautiful music but if you get lost in the story then the music Gets lost with it, yeah, as well.
1: yeah, exactly, exactly. But even you know, go back to Hamilton, and I feel like we all talk so much about Hamilton these days. Why is that story about the founding of the United States so compelling, and not just you know a Saturday morning special or an after-school special? Um, it's because of the relationships in that story, and 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 think about the moment, the tragedy of Alexander Hamilton's life, and and. Uh, It's Quiet Uptown, how many people would talk about that moment of It's Quiet Uptown and how that humanizes these characters that are monolithic in our American psyche, and they suddenly become human because of the story that's being told about them. So I do think we want to relate to the characters that we see on stage we see ourselves in them often. Absolutely. You know, we all have our own human stories. So we like seeing other human stories, real stories. I also
0: think that it's generational because like when you think about uh, shows in the eighties mm-hmm. and nineties, mm-hmm. you know, there's fan of the opera, Les Mis <laughs> secret garden. These were stories that, that were grand yes. and spectacle or the music was epic or, you know, what whatever it was that they, they were trying to just kind of, either take you away from the, you know, know, get you out of, you know, whatever, whatever you walked in from. They they were trying to just escape, you know, escapism in, in theater. Whereas now I think we want to feel like we're pulled in and we're like a part of it. And we're, and so I also think that, the theater goers now just expect something a little different and more intimate. No matter how big a show is, they want an intimacy where they feel a part of it.
1: Well, and can we, you know, if we want to go way far back, I mean, that's been kind of the cycle that American theater has been on from the very beginning. But I love that you point out the hugeness of 80s musicals, because you're right, Miss Saigon, Les Mis, um, Cats, I mean, these were huge uh, spectacles of musicals, just like our huge hair and our you know huge parachute pants in the 80s. Um, everything was bigger then, right? right. Um, but, but going back, you talk about escapism, Going back to the golden age, we talk about the golden age of the American musical being Oklahoma to hair. So 1943 to 1968. But in reality, if escapism had not been necessary, it probably would have started much sooner because showboat were basically all of the things that Rogers and Hammerstein did in Oklahoma, Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein were doing in showboat and showboat, which premiered in December of 1927 was hugely popular but what happened in 1929 the stock market crashed mm. and so suddenly nobody wants to go to the theater to think and feel and see a great story right suddenly they want to see ziegfeld's follies dancing dancing girls in you know in fancy clothes <laughs> um they want the escapism that's when we get the returns like the cole porter music you know like anything goes um the very escape escapism sort of genre um uh, because it mirrored what was happening um, in the world at the time. People, the people who could afford to go to the theater throughout the Great Depression didn't want to be reminded of depressing things. They wanted to be, they wanted their money to entertain them and take them away. So that's definitely, um, reflected in theater as well. But even today, about stories is think about how often we hear the phrase in uh, authenticity that's a Ugh. real buzzword right now so maybe that's kind of subconsciously in my mind as I think it's got to be about the story and the characters it's got to be about that because I'm thinking authenticity um, and maybe in the 80s <laughs> there was nothing authentic about the 80s I don't know <laughs>
0: Some beautiful music, though. I mean, I still consider Les Mis to be one of the best musicals ever.
1: Completely agree. And and I will say also for Phantom, the Phantom of the Opera was the first show I ever saw on Broadway. Uh, It opened, I believe, 1987. I saw it in 1991. I saw it again with my nieces when I was in town for Broadway Con in 2018. And it is just as breathtaking. I mean, it just Mm -hmm. does not age. It is breathtaking. So yeah, I agree. Those musicals, some of them have stood the time. It's funny um, to prepare for this. I was looking through some nominees though, and there are a lot of 1980s nominees that do not stand up, <laughs> but there are many that do. So we'll focus on those.
0: <laughs> Very true. So, so looking back on, on Tony Awards, uh, I, I, I went all the way back to, yeah. to the beginning. I was kind of looking up, you know, 1947, yeah. which is when it all began. Right. And when when the Tony Awards began, they really were m- more more of just like a night out, yes. an evening to, to uh, like, hey, let's get all the the big actors and let's have a a dinner. They handed out cigarette lighters right. and money clips for the men, and w- like what was it? Uh, compacts was it? Some kind of, for the women. Y- yes, a compact, yes. a makeup compact <laughs> for the women. So so I mean, they they didn't have awards um, or anything. It was more just trinkets yeah. of of things. Yeah, and. Uh, And so it's interesting how far the Tony awards have come now. Now it's basically a marketing machine,
1: right? And, and, you know, that's absolutely right. And that really started in 1967 because the American Theater Wing, which had produced the Tony Awards starting in 1947, they found themselves in some financial straits. So they went to the, um, what is now the Broadway League, which was basically a league of producers, theatrical producers. And they said, can you help us? Uh, And so that's when it became a national, nationally televised broadcast was in 1967. And um, the, the American Theater Wing made money that year um it was i believe 30 percent of uh the televisions that were on at that time slot it was in april or march is in the spring earlier in the spring rather than in june at that point um and like 30 percent of the televisions that were on at that time were tuned in to the tony awards now how about that there's a couple of things there are a couple of reasons for that there weren't as many TVs, there weren't as many channels, but nonetheless, that's pretty compelling. Um, and it was enough of a success that it continued. I mean, it continues to this day, uh, as a nationally broadcast event. Um, but it's always been that, you know, when the American theater wing started it, it was to award excellence in theater. And then when they partnered with what is now the Broadway league, The Broadway League, of course, wants to sell tickets because they are producers. And like I said, there is no business like show business. And so they have been at odds from day one and if you if you look back over the past 50 years of their relationship or whatever it's been you'll see every couple of years the Tony Awards or the American Theatre Wing and the Broadway League are going to split up they can't come to terms in fact in the mid 80s there was talk of the Broadway League starting their own award show called the Billies instead of the Tony's named for William Shakespeare so there's they just they're like they're like an angry married couple who cannot get a Along, <laughs> right? But but it seems to be in more modern times they're getting along better. But um, yeah, the American Theater Wing, generally speaking, wants it to be about art and the the craft of creating excellent theater, and the Broadway League wants it to wants be to, to make money. <laughs> mm-hmm. yep, yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: That kind of comes back to what you were saying before about the economics of theater are always going to be tied into where it goes artistically, right? and Absolutely. and i mean you know i mean but, but but that's why there's off off broadway off broadway right. to kind of take those risks to it, it doesn't require as much money you, you can kind of like fiddle with things and do a bare bone stage and kind of see what works right but broadway then there's a certain level of expectation costs Absolutely. go up expectations go up
1: well and you know for a number of years off broadway producers now um When the Tony Awards was started in 1947, there really wasn't an off Broadway. Off Broadway was beginning at that point, but there really wasn't this uh, reaction against mainstream commercial theater um, yet, but it was starting, but it really came more in the 50s and 60s. So when they specified that it was for excellence in Broadway, There was no, they weren't trying to exclude Off-Broadway. There just wasn't an Off-Broadway. So there has been some conversation over the past decades that maybe they should um, allow Off-Broadway shows to be considered for the Tony Award. You can imagine, you know, it moves the needle in terms of ticket sales. So it's a great financial boon to those who win the Tony Award. Um, And and Off-Broadway obviously would love to have the prestige that comes. It's the only it's the only nationally recognized theater award. I mean, granted, we have the Drama Desk and we have the Outer Critic Circle Awards and, and, and those Drama League. And these are wonderful things and, and great honors to those who win them. But they're not Tony Awards. If you ask the average person on the street, what's the National Theater Award, they're going to say Tony Awards. That's the one that they know. Right. So yeah, um, yeah, you'll
0: ask him about what, what, the Obie Awards and be like, right. what's that?
1: What's an Obie Award? Exactly. What's an Obie Award? So there's been some, there was conversation for that for a number of years, about that for a number of years. And in fact, Isabel Stevenson, who was the um, president of the wing for, I mean, I think from like 1966 until 1998 for a long, long time. She's the one still, I think, most closely associated with that role. Um, But she said, you know, I think that they should be considered. The problem is, again, comes back to economics, because one of the stipulations of being considered for a um, Tony-nominated show is that you have to allow, or or to give two tickets to every uh, one of the Tony voters. So there's like 800, an average of, I mean, it varies from year to year, but there's an average of 800 voters. So if you're giving 1,600 tickets away, to a show that costs a hundred, say that say the average from us we got $122, that's cost prohibitive for an off-Broadway show. Um, and, and it's 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 even a consideration for a lot of Broadway shows you know um, and yet in order to be considered for a Tony you have to be able to do that so one of the ways around that is the Obies Obies came around in 1989 and they were sponsored at the time by the Village Voice um, now right. they're co-produced since 2015 they've been co-produced with the American Theater Wing so I think that's a way to kind of in that conversation where the American theater wing does acknowledge off Broadway and the great things that they're doing, but it saves the producers of off Broadway shows from having to go to the incredible expense. I mean, it could be a hundred thousand dollars or more a show just in tickets. Um, and off Broadway shows don't have that kind of a budget. Most of them. Uh, right. So, exactly. So I think that that was finally resolved.
0: Well, what's interesting, one of the, the trivial facts that I found was that there was one exception the, when the Tony Awards gave an off-Broadway award.
1: I do not know the answer to this. What is it?
0: It was to, and I, I may not be saying her name right, but Lottie Linnea.
1: Oh, yeah, Lottie Linnea. Uh, Yeah. Yeah,
0: from Three Penny Opera.
1: Okay, okay. She
0: was nominated. She was nominated for feature actress. And I, I believe... I, I can't remember if she won, but she was definitely nominated. But the Three Penny Opera itself won a special Tony Award for its presentations. It, it was one of the special Tony huh. Awards given that year. I did so not know that. it's the only exception where the Tony Awards honored an off-Broadway production.
1: How about that? That's interesting. And yeah, that is another way I think that they've given themselves an out is they allow themselves to present those special Tonys so that um, – If there's anything exceptional, they're able to recognize it without, you know, having to go through the typical process.
0: And what I love about researching, and and I'm sure you find this too, is that you find those little nuggets of like, what? I never even thought that this would have happened. So I was looking up Tony, you know, you think Tony Awards, it's given to producers, actors, directors, everyone involved.
1: (laughs) I know what you're going to say.
0: There are Tony Awards given to people who had nothing to do with making a show yes the the most entering and interesting ones i thought and and again this comes back to that that first one 1947 was vincent sardi yes. of the famous sardi's restaurant yes and he was given it for promoting theater and having a comforting home for <laughs> artists to go to like, like that was the reason that they gave right, right. and which is which is which is still true and i i didn't realize this till a few years back but they still on wednesdays in between shows there's like a ten dollar lunch given to any any artist that comes in in between no shows kidding.
1: I did not know that yeah. well okay I thought I thought what you were gonna say was gonna go back to the um, to that first Tony Awards when they gave an award to a dentist and his wife who attended
0: a shoe salesman
1: oh was it a shoe salesman <laughs> um, it, who uh, attended every opening night that Broadway season yeah. <laughs> I mean like I feel like I could have had one for having the most cast recordings when I was right, in college. Right. You know what I mean? Like, that's what they they, gave, they could give it for whatever they want to do. And even what's interesting, it's so how, how differently it works now, is that the shows that were, um, that were presented that night in 1947 were shows like Oklahoma, which had been running since 1943, right. and Carousel been running since 1945. So it definitely now other others like Brigadoon and Binian's Rainbow, they were new to that season, but there was definitely not the structure in place that we have today. No, not at
0: all. I th- I found the wording so
1: interesting. I found
0: that it was Ira and Rita Katzenberg. That was their name, the couple.
1: Katzenberg. And the yes.
0: reason this is the quote enthusiasm as inveterate first nighters. <laughs> So love for it. years and years, and years it. and years and years, they had they had gone to, and and were in the first row of every opening night to every show on Broadway, and um, so th- so they were they were being honored, and 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 I was
1: reading. Of course, they should get a sterling of silver course. compact and a fourteen karat gold cigarette lighter. <laughs> and,
0: and I was reading, and I was reading. It was on Playbill. Here we go.
1: That is. So, yeah, so
0: playbill is where I said retired shoe manufacturer. So that that that's what playbill okay, says. Okay. Okay. So here's what it says: They had attended opening nights, always in the same front row seats for three decades. And Mr. Katzenberg wow. was bald. He always spread a handkerchief <laughs> over his head just as the curtain rose to avoid catching a cold.
1: <laughs> I love it. I want to be. Yeah. I want to see a musical about the Katzenbergs. Just call it right? Katzenbergs. Just call it that. And he's gonna have a chip on his head the whole time
0: the the next sentence is really what got me you know as if producers don't get a bad enough name <laughs> many years later it was producer david merrick who refused the katzenbergs their row a opening night seats quote i don't want those two mummies who fall asleep distracting my actors <laughs>
1: Well, you know, Merrick was famous for not giving a you-know-what what people said, so that sounds like just about like what he would say. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, there's no such thing as bad publicity, right? Right. But, you know, it's funny that at this first Tony Awards, they were giving awards for people who went to every opening night and and, and things like that, because later, one of the riffs that—and again, it's it's all— you know, when negotiations fall through, when it would come time for the Tony Award or for the theater wing and Broadway League to renegotiate, of course, they're going to say, well, we can't work with them because they're too blah, 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 or they're too this, that. But one of the things that they said, what the American theater wing said, we don't think that awards should be given to the um uh, the publisher of playbill or the president of an advertising agency. We think it should be for excellence and artistry only. Like, okay, do you, do you? Ira Katzenberg says otherwise.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I
1: mean, let's not get off get off your high horse. Okay. <laughs> but th-
0: but then they gave a special Tony Award to John D. Rockefeller for creating the Lincoln Center.
1: Mm-mm. Yeah.
0: That was 1960.
1: Wow. I feel like he deserved that.
0: Yeah, you know? I, the Lincoln Center—it's—it's—it's <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost like a two-block radius or, or three-block radius. Yeah, and I mean, th- you have you have the opera there, you have the ballet there, you have uh, at least one or two off Broadway. You have the the Broadway House, Lincoln Center. You, I mean, you yep. there's and, and then you have the the other venue that has concerts coming through, or
1: and the library for performing, New Public Library for Performing Arts. Right.
0: Yeah, just I mean, so there's so many things that are happening arts wise right there in the Mm -hmm. Lincoln Center. So it's kind of it's kind of an amazing just little microcosm of the entire New York theater scene. Mm
1: -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So, I mean, you know, if you're going to give if you're going to give a a Tony Award to a businessman, I guess that that's that's as good a reason as it is. That's
1: acceptable. I think that's acceptable. I'm going to give him a pass on that one. (laughs) I would have voted yes for that.
0: So we've been talking a lot about the golden age of of the Tony Awards, golden age of Broadway, and I and I think this is a, I think it's a really great way to kind of uh, end the podcast is to talk about your specialty, which is Dorothy Fields, and what she meant to that era of Broadway. What was it about her that really led you to write your dissertation on her, to really research her, and and dig into who she was?
1: I'm gonna tell you the. Gospel truth, and it is one word prayer. I prayed so hard. I was so nervous about writing a master's thesis when I went to graduate school. My poor advisor can tell you, I would sit in her office from like the first week of class saying, what am I going to write about? What am I going to write about? And I knew that I wanted it to be musical theater. I knew that I wanted it to be um, golden age because that was the stuff that I loved mostly. So I would say, I was like, Cole Porter. What about Stephen Sondheim, early Sondheim? What about Irving Berlin and everything? She, she would very kindly, because she's, sweetest woman alive but she would make it known that that had been done I needed something that had not been done and so (laughs) one of those days as I was desperate to find this topic so I could get to work uh this name flashed and this is honest to god how it went this name flashed in front of my eyes from a show card just a show card I had seen her name and I said what about Dorothy Fields I didn't know Dorothy Fields from a hole in the wall, except I knew her name from a show card. It was the Sweet Charity show card that flashed in my head. And she said, I don't know anything about her. So I went home, I Googled, uh, and looked, You know, found out that she wrote music from 1924 until her death in 1974. In fact, she had been at a rehearsal for a national tour of Seesaw, for which she wrote the lyrics to Cy Coleman's music. um, The day that she died, she died suddenly. Oh wow! I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. So she'd been at rehearsal and then went home and uh, and passed away suddenly. So uh, I found out she had written. She
0: literally died doing what she loved.
1: Literally died doing. And let me put this in context for you. She was a woman writing at the, I mean, at the top of her game from 1924 until 1974. There weren't any other. Well, I said that's not true. There were other women. But to have that length, to have a five decade long career, to win a Tony Award and an uh, Oscar, she was the first woman to win an Oscar for a song in 1936 for Swing Time. Um, Mm. But to have the level of success that she did was unheard of for a woman working in the mainstream Broadway theater. In fact, in the early 70s, the Smithsonian commissioned a Hirschfeld line drawing by Al Hirschfeld. And it was called the great American songwriters. And in it, you'll see all of these great American songwriters in his iconic style around a piano and it's Cole Porter and it's Irving Berlin and it's Ira Gershwin and it's George Gershwin and it's all of these men. And guess what? One beautiful, brilliant face of Dorothy Fields, who's the only woman included. And so I immediately knew this is someone that I wanted to know more about. I went back that night, I had class with that professor uh, that evening. I told her what I found out, and she said, okay, let's do this. And what I found was there were books and books and volumes written about Hammerstein and Rogers and Lorenz Hart and all of those other great, brilliant men writers of theater whose songs I adore and and sing all the time. Right. But there was there was not much to go on when I was looking for things about Dorothy Fields. At that point, there had been one book written about her by Deborah Grace Weiner called "On the Sunny Side of the Street," um, which I I poured. Did through. she write that song? she did write that song. Yes, she did. Let me tell you some of the songs she wrote. Okay. So she wrote On the Sunny Side of the Street, I'm in the Mood for Love. She wrote I Can't Give You Anything But Love, Baby. She wrote The Way You Look Tonight, which was her favorite of her songs. Um, she wrote that with Jerome Kern. But then she also wrote songs at, uh, in 1966, like Hey Big Spender, spend a little time with me. Um, and, and at that point she was, let's see, depending on who you believe, whether she was born in 1904 or 1905, which there is some discrepancy, um, you know, she was what, 61 years old, 60, 61 years old, and 60 to 61 year old women didn't write things like that in 1966. And yet there she was being just as racy as she needed to be for the time period in order to write a really amazing song that lives to this day. Um, so she is, she is an amazing and incredible woman who, like so many amazing and incredible women throughout the history of theater and throughout history in general, has been largely forgotten. And Hmm. so through my master's thesis and my doctoral dissertation, it has become a goal of mine to be sure that she is no longer forgotten, uh, but that she is restored to her rightful place in the canon of musical theater creators. And in fact, again, like I said, it all goes back to Hamilton. When I hear that lyric, Angelica Schuyler sings, bear with me because I don't want to get it wrong. Every other founding father story gets told every other founding father gets to grow old. Guess who I think about? I think of that image. That Al Hirschfeld line drawing, where there's all these other brilliant men who wrote brilliant music that we all know and love. And we all know their stories, and we've all read their biographies, and we all have their collected lyrics on our bookshelves. So those founding fathers get to grow old. Why hasn't Dorothy e. Fields gotten to? Well, that yeah. is my mission to make sure that she gets to grow old and that her story gets told. So well, here I go. And,
0: and, 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 yes. <laughs> and I <laughs> already right, talk
1: you. all day about this.
0: <laughs> well, well, of course you spent years researching her and I, I would say that I agree with you that when I think of that that golden age 30s 40s 50s and the, and the songwriters. I mean, yeah, it's it's a bunch of men. And right. then I do I had heard of Dorothy uh, Dorothy Fields. So she wasn't an unknown name because I've, you know, being a singer myself, I sure. I see those composers on, you know, right under the title of sheet music. Yeah. So I I knew her name, but as far as the whole, the, the history, the stories and everything. I know the Hammersteins and Rogers and Sondheims and all that. I don't know her story. I know her name. So I know she was a person, but I really don't know her story.
1: Yeah. And she's got an incredible story. Um, in fact, she is an incredible woman and I am so thrilled to uh, recently have been contracted to write a book uh, about her life. But, uh, in 2010, a musicologist named Charlotte Greenspan wrote a book called Pick Yourself Up, which she also wrote, um, that, that lyric, um, which was quoted by president Obama in his first inaugural address. So showing her relevance has spanned the decades, but, um, what, what's going to make this one I hope distinct is that her career gives us a chance really to, uh, look as well at the development of the American musical because she wrote for so many years. And so we can kind of trace, oh, um, you know, we can kind of go from vaudeville to reviews, to musical comedies, to, music, to, to what we consider a book musical, um, So it allows us some interesting opportunities to trace that development. So that's what I'm hoping to do that I think will be maybe a little bit different approach to um, not not just being a biography, but really a biography of her as well as a biography of the American musical. So that's that's my mission.
0: I love that. And to have a central yeah. character, a central figure that can span all those decades, I, I think is a great way to look at history through the lens of of one person to see yeah. how it revolved around her. And also how how her music changed through those decades as well yes. i think i think that's a great way
1: i'm so glad you said that because one of the things that's so amazing about her is that she was able to write songs that were you know popular in the 20s as well as as well as you know like i said 1966 she writes hey big spender so she adapted her style um she worked with men like jerome kern who we think of as one of the fathers of the American musical theater, but then she was working as a 60 year old woman with a 25 year old Cy Coleman, who was known for his jazzy kind of music. And in fact, you know, it it said of Irving Berlin that towards the end of his life, he grew very depressed. And he said, you know, it was if the audiences didn't want to hear what I had to sell anymore. Hmm. What Dorothy Fields did was she changed what she had to say, you know, she was able to adapt as audiences changed as, um, the the culture what the culture was willing to accept on stage change she was able to adapt with that as well and that gave her this incredibly long um productive career that has been a great pleasure and thrill of my life to research and study
0: well you'll have to keep us apprised whenever this book comes out as you're in the process of compiling and writing it but uh, but thank you so much this has been so enlightening and just so much fun to just kind of to just gab about Broadway.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I live with uh, a husband and two little boys who do not like to talk about musical theater. So this has been a thrill <laughs> for me. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I'm I've I'm glad to take on that and just be a friend to talk to. <laughs> Thank you, Kristen.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: To learn more about Kristen, go to winmepodcast.com. There in the show notes for the episode, you'll see all the details and the links of what we talked about today. Also on the website, check out this week's blog post, as well as a link to help support and donate to this podcast. More importantly, if you enjoy listening to these stories and interviews as much as I love being a part of them, then please share this podcast with those who you think would enjoy and benefit from these conversations. As always, thank you for joining me and Kristen today. Don't miss a single episode by subscribing to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, reminding you the reasons for not making it may be countless and frustrating, but the reasons to keep going are even more numerous and rewarding. I'll see you next time.